Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. What an honor it is to introduce today's guest, Matt Whitcomb, who is head coach for the U.S. cross-country ski team, where he has coached at the past three Winter Olympic Games, Tokyo most recently, Pyeongchang in Japan, and Sochi. And admittedly, I do not know much about competitive cross-country skiing, more than what I see every four years on the Olympic coverage, but I do understand the value of a good coach and a mentor when it comes to achieving anything in life, whether it's athletically driven or not. So today, we focus a lot on the ingredients in developing a world-class athlete or a world-class performance of any kind. Uh, Is it the amount of hours you train or spend on your craft? Or is it the mindset? Is that the superpower of success? Does a dictatorship coaching style breed more success than maybe a more autonomous, hands-off approach to coaching, where your coach acts more like your partner in the journey. When you're competing in a field of people at the top of their game, i.e. the Olympics, how do you get that extra 1%? And how do these athletes deal with the pressure of that glaring spotlight on their sport that shines so bright every four years? We discuss definitions of success and failure. And for me, the most important question that I could ask Coach Matt was, hey, could you Ted Lasso your way into coaching a completely different sport altogether? Essentially, are the key elements of a successful coach transferable to any sport or any endeavor? These are fascinating topics. And if you're going to learn from everyone, heck, it may as well be an Olympic head coach. So welcome, Coach Matt Whitcomb. Well, Coach Matt Whitcomb, thank you so much for for joining this morning. It's you and I have been texting back and forth for a couple of months, and uh, you came at the at the recommendation of a former podcast guest, Spencer Newell. You guys go way back many, many years in the ski world. So um, I'm going to start off with just a really, really, really heavy question. Do you have any gossip on Spencer that we can share? Oh, yeah. Do I? (laughs) I for sure sure do. um, You know, uh, the gossip about Spence is all, unfortunately, character building for him. He's just Mm. uh, at the core, a, a caregiver, a helper. Um, and as an only child, I think it's uh, pretty remarkable when you end up that way. I, of course, I have a lot of only child friends that are just wonderful people, but um, they always make fun of themselves for being selfish. And, and I think Spence has that side to him, but he is at his core, like um, just so interested in helping other people. So he's like the the best coach. I had a pretty trippy experience when I was listening to your podcast with Spence. 
I was, um, it was about 1130 at night. I was, I was in bed in Alaska at a training camp, just, just starting to kind of drift out. And as at the point where he was getting to the, he was talking about suicidal thoughts and it just, it just really woke me up. And, um, I wasn't, wasn't aware he was going to go there with the podcast and simultaneously we had an earthquake and that was not, Whoa. A but, Whoa, Whoa. Yeah. That, um, what is the significance in that? We, <laughs> we could explore that for days. Well, yeah. you were, you were in Alaska. And then when I texted, uh, last week to, to follow up, um, you said, Oh, I just got back from Norway. So Alaska, Norway, what in the world? Like most people in the summertime, you know, we're out on the water, we're, we're hiking in the trails and you're finding snow and cold and, and probably some conditions conducive to your ski athletes, your cross-country ski athletes. So uh, tell me a little bit about where, like your, your experience in Norway, was this a training camp? Yeah, we, I just got back from Scandinavia a week ago. Um, we were in Sweden for the first week. We fly into Oslo, drive two hours to this town called Torsby. And they have, um, you wouldn't believe this unless you actually saw it, but you just have to trust me. It's an underground or semi-subterranean tunnel uh, that is refrigerated to 27 degrees. And it's just shy of a mile long. It's a loop. It's a cross-country ski course with hills. Um and it's like the skier's equivalent of training in a pool. Um, and so, you know, with our sport, anybody that complains about the monotony of skiing really has to uh, sort of reevaluate what's wrong because it's probably not actually the monotony of skiing because we get to do everything. And even in that tunnel, it was longer than 50 meters back and forth. You know, it was a, almost a mile. So just, just <laughs> right. wild. And then we flew to Trondheim. Norway for the second week and we got involved in some this uh, race series called Topi Dretsveka which is top sports week um and there were you know a couple hundred Norwegians competing there and on the streets of middle Norway and Trondheim and islands near Aura and Hitra and uh, just a wonderful experience going right into the lion's den to to remember what it is we do yeah well uh Norway and the Norwegians it- in in another sport that I follow very closely, triathlon, everything is about the Norwegians these days. And they they seemingly came out of nowhere with these really, really unconventional training practices with their top level athletes and are dominating the sport currently. And we know as in skiing, Norway is is pretty synonymous with, with skiing. Our are they getting the headlines as well for, for these kind of non-traditional ways of training or is it just good old fashioned hard work? You know, it's uh, disappointingly, it's often as, as simple as that. Um, and even, you know, this is cross country skiing and, and football um, is actually kind of their top sports. And when we raced in one of the, these roller ski races two weeks ago, 50% of Norwegians who were watching TV at that time were tuned into that roller ski race. And, you know, unbelievable. You can actually get an Alpine or cross country race on TV. We're lucky, much less uh, some, some summer dryland 
competition. Yeah. yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely dig into that here in a little bit, but I definitely want to rewind. I uh, dove right into your recent yeah. travels and your recent training camps, but let's, let's back the tape up a little bit. And I can say tape because you and I are probably similar in age when we actually remember tapes. So rewind sure. on the cassette and tell me a little bit about your background as a kid, always into sports, always into skiing. Um, I'd love to know like your, how you matriculated into uh, where you are today. So let's start with youth. Yeah, um, pretty fortunate. We grew up in a small town. I, I have a brother and a sister, both younger. Um, Western Massachusetts, out in the woods, a little thousand-person town. And, um, you know, we got outside early. It wasn't, wasn't about sports. It was just about getting outside. Um, maybe we were kicked out of the house. I don't, I don't know what it was, but we were really released for the day into the woods. And, uh, you know, I was allowed at six, seven years old to go out with my fishing pole and, and be gone for what I remember as being hours and coming back with fish. And it was the eighties. So we didn't have cell phones, of course. And, and we grow up, frankly, a, a little bit broke. I mean, we didn't know it at the time because our parents did everything to, to feed us and put skis on our feet. But, um, when we would be late, we would try and find a payphone and we'd call collect. And when it came time to prompt your name, instead of saying your name, you would say, sorry, I'm late. I need a ride from the store and then hang up. And that's how so we you could... wouldn't get charged. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was just like the routine in my house. So <laughs> that is yeah. incredible. We, we got outside. We got outside early and we just lived outside. And coincidentally, we had a cross-country ski area in our in our tiny little town called Hickory Hill that the Cena family ran. And a club, a small club started. It grew into a large club. And, you know, other than my parents, the coach that I just fortunately drew um, happened to be the most influential person in my life after my after my folks. So, um, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if he was a Frisbee coach or um, was there to teach us how to knit. Um, we were going to do it. We were, we were buying what he was selling and, and it happened to be cross country skiing. Mm. And what qualities did he possess that you, that these many decades later, that is still uh, in you? It sounds like it's very innate. What qualities can you remember as a kid that just attracted you to him? Yeah, he was, um, you know, he was in the trenches with us. Um, and, and by trenches, I just mean the woods, you know, and we'd go out, I couldn't wait to get out of school because it meant we'd, we'd be back together with our, our little tribe of 12 or 14 boys and girls and, and this guy, Ed Hamill. And he was, I guess, at the time in his late thirties, early forties, later in our childhoods. And he'd just be running in the forest with us, but he never, always he, he wouldn't always tell us exactly what to do he would he would ask us what to do like if somebody was in the front he might ask them which direction we were going next and we would just get lost and so he gave that he gave us that control that autonomy over over what we were doing each day and i think as it turns out there's some perhaps for him it was intentional maybe it was accidental but that's how to motivate people you give them a little control yeah and it sounds like adventure over too much structure because I think too much structure as a, as a young athlete or 
you know, honing in, the, in on that single sport from day one and never deviating and, and becoming almost robotic can, can burn the best of them out. But it sounds like he treated most practices or at least those that you can remember as an adventure that you got to control, which is, which is fantastic and kept it fun, kept it fun as it should be for, for youth sports. And then were you involved in any other sports or was it just cross country skiing from the get-go? Um, I ended up, I, I don't know what the Genesis was, but we also, um, I don't know if skiing was my first sport. I think it probably was, but we got into running. Um, my dad started doing these Tuesday night races for which he has a plaque for doing 250 of them. Um, never very fast. Um, I'd like to get a little jab in there, but, uh, um, you know, we started running with him. And so we joined the cross country running team. And I think we were so drawn to the team that Ed had, had created that we, we just had to be on other teams too. And so we played baseball and track and field and cross country running. And it wasn't because we were like just gifted and that's what we were destined to be. It was because that was the environment we grew up in. Yeah, exactly. I think it's so, um, geographically dictated in many respects, you know, I grew up in Ohio, so there was <laughs> there was not a ton of winter recreation like there is on on the coasts and other areas in the country. To to me, growing up, and you know, I grew up in the '80s as well. Winter was just like you sled and then you um, you know sat for the next six months and and ate Campbell's soup or something. There didn't appear to be a lot of like recreation and sports around the snow at least in the middle of the United States where I, where I grew up. So as an athlete, then did you pursue skiing then collegiately? And, and was there ever a goal for you to compete and did you ever compete professionally in the sport? Um, I did not ever compete professionally. I did, I did compete in college. I went to a school in Vermont, Middlebury college, and I was, I was, uh, good okay pretty good you know I was not great um good enough to make the team but not good enough to um be on plaques when you go visit the school that kind of that kind of good so I was good enough to have fun um to be able to set goals and accomplish them and to enjoy the team and everything and I I wouldn't change a bit about it And, and I did have Olympic aspirations um as many kids want to um and you know just fell cleanly short of all of <laughs> but you, you know, did it, you did not cross the bar over mediocrity i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you know i mean it, it was impossible not to dream about the olympics because we were literally skiing to school as kids um and it was maybe took 20 or 30 minutes to get there it was uphill one way and downhill the other way and you know you'd stick your skis in the snowbank outside of russell h conwell school and um Pretty soon, a, a couple other kids were also skiing to school, and and those those are the ones that sort of became became your team, and and we did the same on bikes, and so it was just a it was a life of of exercise accidentally, not because we were fitness freaks, just because that's what there was to do, and and so there was there was no uh, there's no option other than to to want to be an Olympian. And what brought you from you know Western Massachusetts and then Vermont to Bend in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah. So, um, Spence from, from your podcast, um, he and I had, 
uh, we competed at junior nationals in 1998 in McCall, Idaho. And we had sustained a shelling so substantial that <laughs> we were like, man, we were roommates. We, we were just like, what are we going to do so that this doesn't happen again? Um, so we decided to move to Bend where a lot of our heroes like Pat Weaver and Justin Wadsworth, um, JD Downing was running a, a, a training group there. We decided to, after our college semester, uh, we were going to drive out there and there were four of us that drove out and the next year there were 10 and the next year there were over 20 of us that drove out all together and, um, started out as training and maybe it ended as a little bit of training and partying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He described, uh, I live right around the corner from one of the apartment complexes that, uh, that he said that y'all lived in and there would be, you know, 10 dudes in, in this little rickety apartment, but just having the time of your life. Yeah, The best and, and, and spending a ton of time in the mountains. And, and so that's how we, how we ended up out there. It was, it was to become better skiers. And then did you at that point transfer from athlete to coach up on bachelor? Yeah, I, I basically did. Um, I, um, my senior year in college, I lost a very close friend of mine. Um, this, this kid, Chris Walski in a kayaking accident. And he coached for the, at the time, um, uh, it was Mount bachelor ski education foundation. And, um, I really, I, I, I felt for the, for his team, they were destroyed and, and I volunteered to help coach there a little bit that, that summer of 2001. And when it came time to apply for the full-time job, once they sort of had organized and gotten their feet under them, um, I was really excited about it and ready to just become a Bend resident and, and coach there, but I didn't get the job, um, which is no big deal. I'm, going fishing with the guy that didn't hire me um, <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> we, we talked about it. He was at the time, he was probably right. Um, and, and so I moved to Whitefish, Montana and coached there for the winter. Got it. And that was kind of your foray into, into coaching. So can you talk about that distinction between being an athlete and now being a coach, which is probably a hard pivot as an athlete in many cases, unless you have a lot of agency, you're, you're, you're used to being told what to do. You show up to practice. Here's the workout. Here's what we're going to do today. And now suddenly you're in the driver's seat of telling people what they're going to be doing. Did you feel equipped and confident that time or is imposter syndrome a thing in, in men as well? <laughs> I know it's a thing in women, but is it a thing in men? And did you experience it? Um, I, I would say, yeah. Um, yes, I, yes, I experienced it. Um, but I think I was probably more suited to being a coach than an athlete. And, and I, and I'm going to say this, it's going to make me sound conceited, but I was, I was always the captain of whatever sports team I was on. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was fast. It was, it was, or, or good at baseball or whatever. It was, it was because, um, I really enjoyed working together with people and, and bringing them together. Um, that's why I did sport. It wasn't ever really about my, or it wasn't first about my personal excellence in it. And so I think when I switched to coaching, I realized that, oh, actually this is probably what I should have, you know, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, and I, I didn't, when I was at my first race, it wasn't like I was wishing like I was on that starting line. It really felt good to live 
sort of, I guess, vicarious. It doesn't feel like um, a valuable enough word for, for the experience, but to live through these kids and to, to watch the training and all the hard work that we would do together play out over the course of five kilometers or 10 kilometers. I, I just found instant amounts of value in that. Yeah. And that seems to be, you know, a very distinct, I could never do that moment for you where, you know, you took this leap, you know, just even stepping in for your friend who passed to lead a group of kids in a really, really dark time in their lives. I mean, that, that in and of itself to me would be an, I could never do that moment because you're, you're dealing with a, with a lot there in addition to just being a, you know, a new coach and then moving to another town that you've never been to, or that you, I'm, you, I'm sure you'd been to Whitefish, but you know, and a, a new, a new town, new people. And um, there's a lot of people that would let fear dictate them from, from doing that or let them stop them. So was there any hesitation during this transition time from, from athlete to coach where you just, where you felt fear and where you felt like, Oh gosh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I was, I was really, uh, I don't know if set back, but I was really um, disappointed when I didn't get the job because I think I was in it in part to find closure for myself. Um, you know, there aren't a whole lot of things <clears throat> that I was equipped to do that summer for work just for just graduated from college, trying to figure out life. This is what made sense for me. And so I felt like not getting the job was more substantial of a setback for me at the time, given the circumstances than it actually was because, you know, it was going to be a life of <laughs> poverty or a life of poverty, whether I got the job <laughs> not, not like cross country ski coaching, um, right out of college is, is a cash cow. So <laughs> yeah yeah there's bears and sterns or whatever (laughs) jp morgan chase and cross-country skiing exactly (laughs) but but yeah i was i was set back um i was uh you know you nobody really likes being told no or um being placed behind somebody else and and so it was um i had to kind of get back on my feet a little bit and but that's never been too tough for me i mean i've had support with me my whole life this none of this is is a a, a woes me story you know i've i've only succeeded because of the people around me so yeah and and inevitably i think one of the valuable lessons that we all learn in life at various times is that failure often leads to success down the line and this certainly is the case for you because you are now the head coach of the us cross country ski team and take are amazing athletes to the Olympics every four years where you've been involved in the past, what, three or four winter Olympic games. And tell me how that job, you know, in a nutshell, we're, we're, we're skipping probably, you know, 15 years of like going to whitefish to become a coach. And now you're an Olympic coach, but, but how did that transpire? How did that keep elevating? Yeah. Um, well, it all it all happened somewhat fast, but you know, when you're in your early twenties, um, each year feels like a longer portion of your life. So, so now I'm in my forties, and each year is actually, relatively speaking, half as long as it was when I was in my twenties. And so, it didn't feel like it was coming at me fast because um, every week was maybe my first week of working after college, and then it was my second week of working after college, and so. Um, it, it felt like it all came at me slowly, 
Um, and doors opened when athletes skied fast. Um, and that's how coaches in a lot of sports get their jobs. And, and I, I'm not, I'm no exception there. And so I had a, um, five years later, um, I'm, I'm working at, at the ski Academy in Vermont and I had a couple athletes, um, three or four athletes make the world junior team and two of them made the national team. And that sort of pointed a couple of the national team coaches in my direction and started, they started asking questions and, and I, and I got that job way before I was qualified to, which is, um, frankly, it's the case for a lot of men in sports. Um, yeah. let's just like throw that out there. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from that. Um, I'm grateful for the people that took a chance with me, but were there more qualified people? Yeah, probably. <laughs> right. But sometimes qualification is one thing, but I think a lo- any number of people could look good on paper, but it's like, what do you personally bring to the table? So clearly they saw something in just your ethic or your personality that was going to work better than any accolades that may have, may or may not have been on a resume at that time. You know, yeah, I'm grateful for all the opportunities. That's for sure. Absolutely. And so I, I would love to, if you don't mind, dig into some of your mindset as a coach when working with both athletes as individuals and as a team, because I'm I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I would love to deconstruct a little bit of that because you are working with the best of the best and the best of the best have really shitty days sometimes. And so you have to manage just the individual personalities that are up and down and then this team dynamic at the same time that gets a spotlight shown on it every four years. So when you're working with an athlete as an individual, what is, what's the most important aspect? Is it, you know, the data that they provide the, the speed uh, at which they could ski, or is it the psychology? Like, are, are you more interested in seeing that athlete as a whole person? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And timely too, because we just, our, our coaches, in fact, our whole team, but our coaches first took a behavioral traits uh, test uh, through, through a specific company that is, we've, we, that is consulting with us. Um, And basically on a continuum of intellectual behaving intellectually to behaving instinctually, I, I got like a super low score on the intellectual side of things, which, you know, People who know me will be nodding their head. And then on the instinctive, I I behave instinctively. And based on past experience, I scored um, exceptionally high, which on my team, on on my team of coaches, there were a couple that were going over our results together. And they both rated incredibly high on the intellectual side of the continuum. And and we all had just a a hearty laugh over that. Um, And so I value data. Um, but I tend to get in the weeds with it. I don't need to, if, if I have an experience um, in the past that I remember um, that I, that I believe worked um, I don't need to see various data sets um, to make a decision. I'm, I'm more likely to um, trust what worked in the past once or twice and, and apply it into the future. And, and I, I don't like to, to ruminate too long over a decision, um, 
I, I think we can just get stuck and we can get a lot done if we can act instinctively. But I respect the various different personality types, which is in, in my deficits are why we have seven coaches on our team. And so that they can cover my deficits and I can cover theirs. What type of data do you measure? Just just curiosity. Uh, obviously, heart rate would be a, a, a data point, pacing, speed. What other metrics are you looking at? It's a it's a data starved sport for sure because um, our courses are all different lengths and even a five or ten kilometer course might be nine point nine kilometers. Um, the snow can change by ten percent with regards to the speed, and so you might ski a ten kilometer race in twenty one minutes one day, and it could be twenty five minutes the next day. Um, so so we're a little bit lost when it comes to the data that track and field or swimming can pull. Um, we test quite a bit of blood lactate. Um, we do monitor heart rate. We spend a lot of time talking with the athlete just simply about how they're feeling. Um, I think that's probably the most important marker that we can, we can pull out of any ses session. Um, we, we watch heart rate variability with some of the athletes who are interested in that. Um, and then of course, over the year, um, athletes have their training plan. They might train. 800, 900, a thousand hours. Um, and within that you can keep track of how much threshold work there is being logged, how much intensity one, you know, that just very low end aerobic, aerobic, um, exercises being logged. How many, how many speeds are they doing over the course of the year? Are they, are they doing 80 speed repetitions a year? Or are they doing 750? Um, and what can we learn from that? And so there's, there's plenty we can extract. Yeah. Yeah. And which leads to kind of the next follow-up question that I have, which is throughout the course of a year, how much of their training is done individually with the programming that you and your coaches are providing them as individuals versus training together as a team at these training camps or at, at uh, the various races? Yeah. It's an important question because our team specifically is we you, we subscribe to a decentralized model and so we don't take all of the best athletes from all over the US which would be the national team and put them in one place to train together we uh essentially require encourage is a better word that everybody has a home club lives in a place with a with a productive robust club and they rely on the coaches within that program um and then over the course of the summer, they will also come to a training camp and bend. You know, we're often in, in Oregon for two weeks in May. Um, we had some athletes in Australia this summer. We had some in Scandinavia with me. We had some in Alaska. Um, and then we'll meet again in two, three weeks in, in October. And so the athletes are located at home during the, during the dry land part of the year, spring, summer, fall. And they come together for two or three training camps as a team. But in order for us to sustain this incessant four months, four and a half months on the road together, where we can't escape each other, athletes um, do Christmas together over, you know, where coaches can escape to go home to their families. Um, athletes are together for four and a half months un uninterrupted. And so uh, we really depend heavily on their their time at home so that they can get some stability there. And, and what's cool is that they have uh, their clubs. I believe all are stronger for it. 
you know, you pull the strongest element out of every region, um, that region becomes weaker. But if you, if you allow everyone to own a little bit of these amazing athletes, um, then we have a better development system. Yeah. And I think it sounds like it makes the athlete more of a complete human being as well, because they're not just relegated to this one team under the, under your direction, you know, they're, they're getting socialized in their clubs and other coaches and other perspectives. And, and that's, that's a, that brings up an interesting topic because, um, for that to work, you have to have the relax, the relaxing of a bunch of egos. Um, you know, it, I, I agree. It's fun to control, um, training plans and, and these little things because you get to, you feel purpose. Um, but I feel much better personally when I'm able to relax my ego and work together with other people and to share this immense workload. And so I, I like to think of the national team coaches as being kind of the, the coaches of everyone, but also the coaches of, of no one. Um, and I've tried to move away from being an individual coach of a few athletes here or there to not personally writing any training training plans for athletes when they're at their home. Um, we, we construct the training camps when they come together and we execute the workouts when they're on the road with us and try to create the most effective day of training for every athlete. But we, as a program differently than many national teams don't control every aspect of the athletes training. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating approach, I think. And I do think it probably, uh, I'm projecting that it might help these athletes as they, you know, in the bell curve of their career and the trajectory up to the Olympics and then beyond Olympics, when that bell curve goes down, like hopefully they're better for it because they have had multiple experiences with coaches and different different team members and various levels of support along the way. Yeah. The other, the other piece there too, is um, with our, with our system where there's a very important club coach where they're from, there are what I would like to um, refer to as very important national team coaches when, when they're on the road or at training camps. Um, but the club coach can only do so much from afar. Um, the national team coaches can only do so much from afar. So there's quite a bit of need for the athlete to do thinking for themselves. And <clears throat> we tried to impress this upon the athletes lately. This is something that I think is really important where <clears throat> the athlete is actually kind of the head coach of their own, their own team. And we are the assistants. Um, and so often in coaching, there's this really strict, rigid, old school hierarchy where the coach is like the, the, you know, the, the um, master of everything. And um, I think it's just backwards and, and it restricts the autonomy that we talked about earlier that is necessary for an athlete to feel motivated. Um, and so, so we really try to encourage the athlete to think about what training they might need that week. And there are a bunch of them that will write out their training for a, for a world cup week in the middle of February and they'll come to one of us and, and say, what do you think? And, and we'll look at it and say, this looks really good. What do you think about this little twist? But at the end of that exercise, the athlete has still come up with 90% of their training for that week. And there's so much more ownership um, uh, that goes into that in executing those little 
those workouts that they put into it. And then when it works out, they feel so there's so much confidence that's derived from it too. And I'm thinking too, just from a physiological standpoint, you're working with kids, you know, guys who are 19 and you're working with women who are 38, you know, and, and everywhere in between. And so physiology is different. Needs are different. Recovery times are different. And, um, what a powerful position to, to be in for that athlete to look at their program and, and really give an honest self-assessment of what they might need that week, but also confidently knowing that your co- you and your coaching staff are going to take a really hard look at what they put together and, and make recommendations or tweaks or changes, or just say, yeah, that looks, that looks great. Um, because then to me, it shows that they, as that athlete's not on an Island, you know, they're not, they're not just making up their training plan and going, geez, it'd be great if I had a coach that would tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, like they know that, that you're in their corner in that, in that regard. Yeah. We, we try and build a team around, around each athlete. That's different than just the actual national team itself, but you know, it might include a club coach, a couple national team coaches, some physical therapists, psychologists, um, a doctor, you know, it's, uh, and so it's, we're all, we're all in this together and, and so much can be accomplished when, when people are actually working together and there's, it's, <clears throat> you don't have to shoulder the entire failure when it doesn't work out. And we are the masters of failure coaches. I mean, you, you have a, a winning coach might only win 60% of the matches or competitions, which means they're losing 40% of the time, which is an incredible amount of loss. And, and so to be able to share that <laughs> hmm. one person gets to win every day. And so that doesn't leave uh, very much victory out of a field of a hundred. Which is a great segue into a, another question, which is then knowing that 60, 40, 60% of the time you're going to succeed on paper, 40% of the time you might fail. Then when you're working with your team, how do you define success then? And then how do you help your athletes define success? Because it may not be a W on that day. So in managing potential disappointment, how do you define then success for that session or that race? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a tough question, but I think it's uh, as cheesy as did we, did we do our best? Um, and I say we, because it's not just the athlete out there. Um, we are, coaches are constructing the plan and to, to make sure everybody has the right uh, nutrition in the weeks leading before the competition, the right transport plan, um, the infrastructure at the venue so that the athlete can, um, can, can be warm and have a place to change the right testing protocol so that of the 30 to 80 pairs of skis that they own, are they choosing the best pair for that day? And um, if they don't, that's partially on us. Um, and so um, there's just, there's so much that goes into um, kind of an athlete succeeding in the race that is um, so f- almost as important as what happens between the start and the finish line. Um, mm. Things must occur. You know, you have to be on time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to be in a warm up. 
um, you can't bonk. You can, I mean, you really can never bonk if, if, if you want to continue to move forward, but, um, and, and so, um, yeah, that makes it, that makes it actually very fun and it takes some of the pressure off the athlete and makes, um, it not just about those 14 minutes between the start and the finish line. It's process. It's process. Yeah. It yeah. Like. It's, it's such a, it's, it's every little controllable step leading up to that start gate that can help you define success or not, even if you don't come away with the win. That's exactly right. And, and so I think the, the question one is, did, did we have a plan and did we execute it? Um, we, as the, the whole team athlete included, um, and then there's, um, did you do your best? And that's, that's an interesting thing. I think we throw that around all the time. Like, oh man, I gave a hundred percent. Did you give a hundred percent? Oh yeah. You know, look at this sweat. I gave a hundred percent out there, but to truly give a hundred percent, you know, if you're a recreational jogger, um, and sometimes you love to get out there and you're by yourself and, and, and you're running this 10 minute hill and, and you're going as hard as you can go and you get to the top and you're like, wow, it really felt good to go hundred percent. Are you actually, or have you ever in your life truly gone hundred percent? I think we throw it around as something that's a little easier to accomplish than, than it is. Yeah. And if you want to see what a hundred percent looks like, um, cue up Jesse Diggins race in the 30 K at the Olympics, you know, that's, that's what a hundred percent looks like. I, uh, Matt, I'm thinking of that exact, like literally, as you were saying that I was thinking about that exact clip, which I will find it and put it in the show notes because, yeah. and I was just going to say across the board, you understand what a hundred percent means when you watch the, the finish line of any cross country ski race, because there is just utter collapse and puke and saliva and but like I've never yeah. seen chests heaving as much as you do at the yeah. finish line. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um and so that you know that's one of the questions that you that you ask of the athletes in in your debrief um is and not right after the race of course even if it went well you know give them give them a little space allow them to enjoy um the success or or process the disappointment. Um, before you before you launch into a debrief about the day, but um, could you have could you have gone harder? And you wouldn't think that for Olympians, um, that's a question that you would even need to ask until you understand how hard it is to actually go 100 percent and how nearly impossible it is. All the while knowing that you still have to pace this race because physiologically you can't just sprint five kilometers or 10 or 50 kilometers from start to finish. It has to be a paced metering of that 100% effort. So it's a, it's a, it's a real puzzle. And I think we think about talent and we, we talk about VO two max and wow, this athlete has this unbelievable um, ability to recruit fast twitch fibers. They're so quick in sprints. Um, but the element of talent that I'm most um, talent and acquired work and skill that I'm most interested in, I think is um, an athlete's ability to just uncrack um, effort uh, time and time again. And, and you'll ask Jesse Diggins, who um, I think uh, is among maybe one or two people in my whole career that I've encountered who can go as hard as she can go. 
for as long as she can go. And for as long. And she'll probably tell you that she does have days where she felt like she could have given a little bit more, even though her whole deal as a racer is that she digs deeper than, than anybody. You just can't find that 100% all the time. And so I, I, I have so much respect for um, these athletes when you see them really uncork, not just a, a fast race, but an effort like that. I think effort is such a powerful word. As spectators of sport and particularly of the Olympics, we we just put our we just put our uh, athletes in this bubble of they're just not human. Um, I mean, stories are built around the goat and stories are built around the fact that these people are machines and that they're just like they're doing things that normal people could never do, which then gets rid of the humanity aspect and and builds and I, I can't imagine, but just adds to that horrific level of stress and anxiety that. Uh, and and the weight of expectations or you know the infamous quote the weight of gold that a lot of them carry and how can how do you and your team manage that particularly going into major competition or the olympics how can you take this ball of stress and they're just not fair expectations that are placed on on these humans how do you humanize it for them yeah, that's it. Well, for it's a, <laughs> it's a big question. I'm sorry. It, it's a fun one because the world is like overloaded with stress. I feel like right now with our ability to, you know, just access email from any anywhere we are, even on airplanes now, you can be you can be found. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of stress out there. And I think as coaches, um, and I'm going to send this out to parents too. It's really important for the athlete or, or our children, not to, not to be thinking, um, that their performance is going to weigh heavily on our mood. Um, Mm. and so, um, you know, if you ask how I deal with disappointment, um, I will not deal with it outwardly. Um, do I, am I, it, it, it's too, there's enough stress for the athlete simply to go out there and be on live television and test the hundreds and hundreds of hours of work that they've done that year and the thousands and thousands of hours of of work they've done in their career and test it over the course of 15 or 30 minutes and and know that in 15 or 30 minutes, you're going to have an answer to did that work. There's so much stress there. And if you have a coach who gets so fired up with success or so emotional about defeat. Um, I don't think you're going to be able to find the, with regularity athletes that can sustain the stress of being an athlete. I think um, coaches and parents really need to detach from that and support the athletes um, in their effort. Uh, And so I, I, I sort of like the idea of, you know, even when an athlete finishes a race, Um, yeah, of course we want them to celebrate if they won, but I shouldn't really be able to tell if you just had the worst day of your life out there on the race course or an average day or a pretty good day. I I would like the, our moods and our well-being not to be so dependent on the results. Um, 
and, you know, take 30 minutes if you wanted to be disappointed about a, a defeat or something like that. But then every minute after 30 minutes, um, that disappointment is just your anchor and it's preventing you from, from turning things around and looking forward to the next race, which could be, and often is the next day you know, on a world and or, yeah. or at the Olympics or in the tour de ski. And you might have six races in the next eight days. And perhaps you blew it in the first stage of the race, or we blew it with your skis. Um, but what are we going to do? What's disappointment going to change about that? Um, and some of us feel the need to outwardly display our disappointment so the world knows that something was wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> we're really trying to get better. Um, detach the rest of the world from, from, from the work that you need to do and, and just simplify it and say, okay, I better get some electrolytes and some sugar in my body right now so that I can be ready for the next day. If you're a disappointed athlete, if you're a disappointed coach and you can't hide those emotions very well, then make yourself scarce and get out of there. Um, because yeah. athletes don't deserve that. Thank you for that. It's, it's so great to hear it from, from somebody of your caliber that, um, you almost have to give yourself permission to fail at you at some point you have to, That's right. and, and you can't, the, the, the waves of emotions while you experience peaks and valleys, if you can somehow manage your mood or your energy to, to, to mitigate those peaks and valleys and just sort of being as even keeled as possible, particularly from a coaching standpoint, I think that's what I'm hearing from you is like your job is to bring your athlete back to center Mm -hmm. from, from the extreme highs and the extreme lows, bring them back to center. I, I think that's right. Okay. I, I like to think of, uh, if I were to describe myself as a coach or the coach that I want to be, it would be, I bring a predictable product to every, every day. And so the athlete is not trying to read this mercurial human being, um, and see where I am on this given day to decide whether or not to impart this particular piece of news on me or ask this question of me, but instead they wake up without seeing me knowing that I can either be the person or not, um, for their, for whatever content they have. So I, I think predictable coaches is, is a, a pretty nice value. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> which <laughs> could you Ted lasso your way into a different sport, you know, bringing your philosophies as a coach, could you go coach on the pitch in soccer or football or softball <laughs> before i saw ted lasso i i used to think about um track and field as as maybe being a relatable sport where um you know it's it yeah sure it's about skill um but it's also so much about effort and and big training hours and something that's transferable um yeah i i i do dream about that a little bit what i like about ted lasso though and and that what makes me think that coaches can switch good coaches can switch sports is that in Ted Lasso, and I haven't seen the second season, um, you're rarely watching mid-game or mid-practice instruction happening. So much of the coaching that he's doing is of the actual human in the locker room. I mean, most of the coaching actually happens in the locker room or um, 
maybe at the pub or, or something like that, you know, it's, it's uh, there's so much that happens off of the field. Um, and I think good coaches understand that um, you let the athlete compete. You let them play the game. Um, there's only so much the shouting coach can do on the, on the side of the trail or on the side of the field. Um, if I'm shouting, it's to uh, try and build excitement for a climb or something, or, or to have an athlete feel support like that. And that's what I loved about Ted Lasso is that um, he, he supported the individuals and the, and the team as a whole. And, you know, the word believe, I mean, it may seem cheesy, but if you believe in something, um, you can do it and you don't do it. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I just, I love that every one of his coaching lessons was very little of it had to do with actual technique on the field and how to kick a ball or how to head a ball. Cause he doesn't know, right. but he could apply you know, from his youth, his youth football coaching to this situation where there's grown men. And, and it took me a while to even warm up to the show. It took me five or six episodes to, to warm up. And then when it clicked, it clicked. And I have a feeling that's just kind of coaching in general. It might take your athletes a while to warm up to you or the way you coach or your style, but like when it clicks, Oh, I'm sure it just, it, it, I'm sure it clicks and, and both bulbs go off in your head and in the athlete's head. Oh yeah. You, you know, you reach, I mean, athletes reach a state of flow in racing. Sometimes that's the, that's the goal. And it can be a trained, uh, you know, sort of mental and physical space that you can find. Uh, but coaches find it too, where you just feel like you are, handling one interaction to the next interaction very well. Um, and then some days you're just off your own center. Um, you know, you're hungry, you're tired, you're stressed and you don't even acknowledge it. And you're just botching one interaction to the next with athletes or a a talk to the team goes, goes poorly. And, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And the lesson from Ted is I, I think don't take yourself too seriously. Um, you know, take a look at the people around you and, and building them up will actually uh, elevate the platform that you stand on as well. And, and so uh, we, we take, we take these competitions too seriously sometimes um, and perhaps the human side that goes uh, actually into them, perhaps not seriously enough. This might be your advice then, but as, as an Olympic level coach, you know, as we've talked about, this show is all about encouraging people to do something that they never thought that they could do or where they say that they couldn't. But we know that in fact, if you want something bad enough, if you believe as coach Lasso says that, that you can achieve whatever goal that you're uh, trying to accomplish. So as an Olympic level coach, what is your advice then for that everyday person who is hesitant or scared? For me, so much of my life is, is about exercise, you know, I'm just around it. And, uh, and I will tell you, there's no such thing as uh, secondhand exercise, you can't catch exercise. Um, <laughs> by, by being at these amazing, inspiring practices. <laughs> I didn't get fit watching Jesse and Rosie and, and Novi and Sophia ski that 30 kilometer race that day. Um, I got cold. Um, <laughs> um I think athletes and coaches, we often hear our friends, our less athletic friends, our less fit friends, 
say things like, or, or, or over the course of our relationship with them, say things that insinuate that they don't have the, the genes, you know, they don't have the, whatever you call them, the skinny genes, the athletic genes, the, the competitive genes, uh, you know, however many ways it's been said subtly over the years to even me as not a, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not an elite athlete, but it still gets said to me, you know, they're, they're aware that I coach athletes and, and the, and the discussion is about the unfortunate genes or body type that they have. But I really believe that, um, we, we all have access to this incredibly fit and mean and ready body. It's, uh, it's just about combating our laziness. It's not that you don't have the genes. Mm-hmm. It's that you're lazy and you have to get your ass out the door. And, um, yeah, sure. Maybe your anthropometry doesn't allow for you to be a super fast runner. But if you go out the door and methodically wisely add load and recovery, you can become a runner. You can become a good runner. You could become as good a runner as your body will allow. Um, and, and just the same skiing is so wonderful like that. We have tens of thousands of skiers in the, in the United States. Um, it's, it's actually cross-country ski is a massive industry. There are between Minnesota and Wisconsin, there are something like 5,000 public high school skiers on teams. And most skiers in the United States are awful at it. <laughs> I can attest. But, I resemble that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but they're out there doing it. Um, and they're a part of a community that allows us to fail um, and, and supports us when we do. Um, and and it's in our um, it's in our uh, control to improve, to get better. Um, and so I just I just think there's um, this there's flashes of a fitness culture that has started to hit the U.S. Um, and maybe it's because you hear about CrossFit all the time. Maybe it's because you hear about Zwift or um, I was going to say Zoom, but this is Zoom. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> there are some people that are actually finding out for the first time that they're they're pretty good athletes. Um, and maybe they're not good enough to actually go compete at a national level or even at a county or a town level. But maybe they're finding out that they are enjoying exercise um, and their body is um, getting stronger and healthy. And as a result, they are gaining confidence and self-esteem. And that's the thing that is in, I believe, everyone's control. Um, When when I'm out of shape personally, I feel worse as a person than when I'm in shape. I feel less confidence. And so I go for a run. And, And over the course of that run, do you get in better shape? No, not right away. You have to rest and and uh, super compensate. But immediately after the run, those those brain chemicals make you feel better. And so if there's one thing that I wish every American could experience, it would be the the joy that is just physical activity. And and you don't have to go out there and try and copy Jesse Diggins or Rosie Brennan's training plan, because only a half a percent of you will be able to tolerate that. However, 
some who um, have never even considered it um, could have a VO2 max of 80 milliliters per kilogram of body weight. You know, they might, they might have this incredible um, physical talent that just is being, uh, it is just totally unknown because they're lazy as hell. <laughs> and so yep. the thing that I wish everybody would do is just get out the damn door, go f- start with a walk and start with a short walk and then do it again the next day and add 10% to it and then try a few running steps and try a few push-ups and, and just get in better shape. And if you really want to feel like goofy, get a pair of cross country skis. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I, I will say that, that I am a complete noob to the sport and, um, took one lesson, one lesson up at the bachelor Nordic center, um, of classic. And, um, so, you know, for some reason, because humans are all or nothing, our mentality, you know, for some reason I expected to be Jesse Diggins in two hours, uh, for the, on the first time on skis. And I, I walked in with, to my lesson with a little bravado because I fancy myself a runner. I like to run on trails. And I was like, well, cross country skiing is basically just running. I mean, you're, it's like, it's the motions the same as particularly classic. You're like, you're in tracks. It's like, what could be so hard? Uh, everything is the answer. Everything is hard about cross-country skiing, not even aerobically. Cause I didn't even tax my aerobic system. Cause I couldn't stand up long enough to move forward in such a way <laughs> that would raise my heart rate over, <laughs> over resting. So I love what you say about just getting out there and just trying it. And the thing about cross-country skiing and anything really is like you are in nature and it's beautiful and it's there for us. You don't have to necessarily be the hamster on the treadmill or the 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 uh, cyclist on Zwift just going nowhere. Like you can get out there and 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 explore nature and see things that you would never ever ever see even if you are clumsy on skis. I hope everybody tries it. And if, if, if you're in Bend and you've never tried it, you're, you're really missing out on an easy opportunity because the Nordic center up there is, is one of the tremendous assets of our team. Uh, we come back every May for two weeks because of Sue Foster and, and Neil and, and just the, the arms that we're welcomed with up there. They have rental skis, they have, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 kilometers of, of trails and, you know, no sport, can you be going two and a half miles an hour and feel out of control and, and have this just absolute exhilarating moment of total safety at the same time. And so it's, it's just a blast. It's a great, great chance to go and laugh at yourselves and your friends and, and, you know, not take yourself seriously. (laughs) It is, it is, it is a lesson in humility, which is what anything is when we step out of our comfort zone to, to do something that we say that we could never do. It has to be a lesson in humility and humor. And I would venture to say that those two things uh, are necessary ingredients when trying something new in life. Yeah, no, that's right. And you know, there aren't 14,000 great skiers in the U S yet somehow every year in Hayward, Wisconsin, 14,000 Americans compete in the American Birkebiner and it's 50 something kilometers long and they do it. And, and, uh, 
that's that's really all you have to do is just get out there and do it. And it's uh, such a blast. Thank you. Thank you, coach. And I, I so appreciate all the time. And I feel like we just got an inside peek into what it's like to be coached by an Olympian uh, or Olympic coach and, and the mindset that you bring. Um, I think that we all think that there's some sort of secret ingredient to being a coach at your level or an athlete on their level. And um, there's just, it doesn't appear to be any secrets. You didn't give me the hack. Uh, (laughs) I wanted the hack, but where can people you know, you've, you, you, you work in a sport that gets a spotlight every four years and then those two and a half weeks come and go. And then we're like, okay, when's the next one? Um, but as you have mentioned and alluded to, there's a hell of a lot of training and racing that takes place, uh, in the, in between those four years. So is there a way to follow the teams? Yeah. You know, there, there is, um, if you have Peacock, you know, it's NBC Peacock. Um, I think just about all of our races are found on there and you don't have to watch them live. I think you can go back and rewatch them. I uh, think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that has helped uh, stymie our ski culture from developing because uh, in Europe, they can watch every race on TV, every, every race that these athletes compete in is seen by millions and millions of people. Um, and, and those are the people that then go out and try, try cross country skiing. So yeah, NBC Peacock has, has been the way to do it. NBC for the Olympics, but, um, you know, it's, uh, that only America really only cares about these, these small sports, uh, every four years, but in the interim, um, we have two world championships, which to us are just as important. Um, it's just as impressive if you win a medal at world championships as at the Olympics, it just doesn't mean quite as much financially. Um, and then these athletes are competing in on the national team, uh, American athletes are competing in 40 world cup races. So basically from middle of November to the end of March, we're in Europe and every Monday is our travel day to the next country. And then we'll race Saturday and Sunday. And then the next Monday we'll travel to the next country and it's just, uh, it just goes on. And every now and then we get two weeks in one place and that's such a luxury. Wow. It is, it is a lifestyle, not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, to, to follow our team people, uh, you know, we all live in these small ponds, um, and, and are supported because of them, these wonderful communities and whatever it is that we do. Um, but what uh, strangers to our community can look for in, in this sport is, is a group of people that really support one another. And I think that's where uh, our team has made big strides over the last 15 years. If you look at the time between 2002 and 2006, the women's team was cut. And so in 2007, we started with a, with a brand new team from scratch. And over the next 10 years, uh, they became ranked as high as third in the world. And so um, that's because probably there were low expectations and everyone believed in one another. And, uh, and so that's what I feel like our fans um, of the American ski team uh, really look to is they love, they love the camaraderie, the support that, that everybody provides. And it's something that I think cross-country skiing in general 
um, exudes is just this acceptance of every of everyone. Sure. sure. Well, congratulations on that, Coach. I mean, like that's a top down thing, and uh, you you have created that culture of belief and camaraderie. Um, there's just no other way to to sugarcoat that that comes from you. So congratulations. I've been, I've been fortunate to work with amazing people. You know, it's a, mm. just a, just a small cog in the whole deal. And, but it is fun. I, I don't do it because of the winning. I do it because of the people. Yeah. Final, final quick question for you. Is there anything that you would say you could never do? Pick up a snake, maybe. <laughs> I thought you were going to say ski at the Olympics. That's just a math. That's just a math equation. Yeah. I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's just insane. Why would anyone ever want to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the Olympics. Just yeah. Kind of how you say the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for your time. And I will link up some details about you and the team and some of these clips from the Olympics. Uh, and, and if I can find like a good link to, to, to Peacock and some of these races, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. You too, Carrie. Thanks so much. You've got a cool, cool topic that you, uh, you speak to. I love it. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt Whitcomb for your time in between training, travel and race season. So many takeaways, but what I find most fascinating and perhaps refreshing was that even at that highest level of performance, I mean, we're talking the Olympics, you have to continuously focus and love the process, not focusing on the outcome, but the process. And you have to remain flexible and resilient, particularly in the face of adversity. So thanks again for listening and supporting the I Could Never Do That podcast. You can drop a dime or two via buy me a coffee and I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes this week as well. Again, this is I Could Never Do That. I'm your host, Carrie Barrett, and we'll see you next time. Take care.